Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Before we jump into this week's second show, a quick note that this is this week's second show. As you no doubt know by now, the great Robert Irwin passed away on Wednesday. We wanted to share with you a memorial episode featuring two curators who worked with Irwin at really different points in his career and my 2012 and 2016 conversations with Irwin. So we pushed that to podcatchers on Thursday, October 26th. Because there are so many good fall exhibitions we want to share with you while they're on view, we decided to make this a rare, maybe unique, two-episode week. So here's the normal show we had planned for this week. It's a good one. First up, Tammy Wynn. The Institute of Contemporary Art Boston is presenting Tammy Wynn, an exhibition of Wynn's new paintings, works on paper, and unique artist books. The exhibition is up through January 28, 2024. The interconnected body of work, informed by East Asian landscape painting, addresses the relationship between man and nature and landscape, as presented by Ralph Waldo Emerson in his 1836 book Nature. I've read that book. The exhibition was organized by Jeffrey Deblois. Wynne is a recipient of a 2023 Guggenheim Fellowship and has exhibited at museums such as MoMA PS1 in Queens, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Manhattan, the Factory Contemporary Arts Center in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, and more. Her work is in the collection of museums such as the ICA Miami and the Dallas Museum of Art. This is her first museum solo exhibition. On the second segment, Jamie Holmes at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. If you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it. Tammy Wynn, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Robert Frank and Todd Webb Across America 1955. Step into a unique photographic journey with Robert Frank and Todd Webb, two photographers who were both funded by Guggenheim Fellowships to capture America in 1955. The New York Times had this to say. While Robert Frank was driving across the United States, Todd Webb was covering the same terrain by bicycle, boat, and foot. Robert Frank's work has become an iconic piece of photographic history but Todd Webb's project remains largely unknown. This is the first time their work has been shown together, offering a rare opportunity to explore America's diversity through their lenses. Discover this extraordinary exhibition at mfah.org slash across America. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Entre Horizontes, Art and Activism Between Chicago and Puerto Rico. Experience the artistic connections and social justice movements that link Puerto Rico with Chicago via an intergenerational group of artists alongside rich archival material that traces the relationships between art, politics, place, and identity. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. And we're back. Tammy Wynn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's great to through, be here. 
throughout your work in, in paintings, and we're going to talk about a lot of paintings today, but also in your work for Passenger Pigeon Press, which is an artist book publisher that you founded and run, you have addressed a seemingly paradoxical interest, nature and violence, and the relationship between the two. When did you start thinking of nature and violence in relation to each other and why? So I think that the connection happened over time. Like it wasn't just, it wasn't like a light bulb went off or anything like that. So after the Cooper Union, so I did my undergrad at the Cooper Union. And when I graduated from Cooper, I was a very passionate abstract painter. Like I think I was like bleeding turpentine. Like I was very enamored by mark making, a sense of making, you know, language through mark making. I was also a very thick and heavy oil painter. Like and I was very enamored by muscular abstract gestural people. And so that was that was what I pursued. And after Cooper or, or no, sorry, during my senior year of Cooper, I had a, the common anxiety of not knowing what I was going to do after school. And I had it very early on. And so I applied for a Fulbright. And I think that at Cooper, Cooper was an amazing school. And I was always really in love with materials and material processes. I was as much of a printmaker as I was a painter. So I was doing all of the different printmaking classes and stuff like that. And that's where I got into artist bookmaking as well. But what was important about this in relationship to the Fulbright was I wrote a Fulbright proposal to go and study lacquer painting. I didn't know what lacquer painting was, but it became a really good kind of way to express a yearning for knowledge in Vietnam. Quickly, quickly explain what lacquer painting is. Yeah, so lacquer painting is a traditional method of Vietnamese painting. There's also lacquer painting traditions across many different cultures across Asia, and they they vary, but there's something very common in them in that lacquer is the binder of of the paint. And so lacquer painting is a really beautiful process, but basically lacquer painting starts out from a dark surface, which is kind of really interesting from a painter's point of view, because a lot of the surfaces that you might work on are traditionally lighter in color, like a a lead white ground, something that might um, hold an underpainting or whatever. And lacquer painting starts from a, a wood that has been prepared with very, very dark, almost black lacquer. And lacquer painting, you bring your light in through metal leaf and gilding, so using silvers and gold. And then the lacquer that you use to mix pigment in has kind of like a, it has like a walnutty color to it. And then you make your paint much like, you know, so it's kind of like your linseed oil or whatever, your gum arabic. And then you mix your paint and then you create your different forms. And then the thing that is so crucial about the process is that it never dries. The only way to dry it is to actually put it in this kind of a humidity room or a humidity box 
And in that space, the lacquer paint rests and then it's able to become hard. And then you take it out and then in a bath of water or you can have a trickling hose or you can just kind of sponge water on, you you wet sand the, the paint away until the paint surface is extremely smooth. And so you're kind of like adding and then excavating your forms until the image that you want to make starts to appear. There's other techniques that you can use in it as well. You can also carve into the surface and lay in eggshell or abalone, which is something you might see on traditional furniture or little jewelry boxes and stuff. And then over time, there's a beautiful poetic thing that happens, which is that the binder, which is this walnut, which was this walnut color, starts to evaporate and the pigment um, becomes more and more pure over time. And so you've got this really beautiful flat surface in which these floating colors are creating an image before your eyes. Anyways, uh, a flat and hard surface and often reflective because yes. it's so polished. And a lot of times it's polished with, you know, you're, you're just hand buffing or something like that. We used to drive out on our like motorbikes to the gas station and fill up like a little plastic bottle with gasoline and then take it back to the studio. And we would hand polish by dipping our hands in the gasoline and then rubbing it. Like obviously very toxic, but good times, right? Um, <laughs> now it, so, so in a related story, is, is lacquer involved in how you got to put nature and violence yes. together? Only in hindsight, but not not, oh. not really. So, anyways, so nature. So sorry. Back to your back to your question. So, um, I so I, I applied for a Fulbright, and that's how I ended up in Vietnam. But while I was in Vietnam, I was still making my own abstract paintings, and I was learning and absorbing and becoming really immersed in the culture. It was really exciting for me to have Vietnamese friends who were like Viet like I mean I know I'm Vietnamese but they were born and raised in Vietnamese I was in Vietnam you know and my language was becoming better and then I was starting to learn a lot about you know where I was from and where my parents were from um the lineages of both sides of my family more and more and everything and then the Fulbright was one year and then I ended up staying in Vietnam for three more years. And I ended up working at a ceramics tile manufacturing company. And this becomes kind of important in, as I reflect on my life because I, I mean, I, I was a type of art director in this company. They had a department called the concepts team. And what we did was we just experimented with the ceramics tiles and created artworks out of it. And so it was a really fun kind of a job. But what it gave me was the experience of working in a multinational company and seeing for the first time an industrial landscape. I remember visiting China, visiting Guangzhou, and just kind of touring around these other ceramic tile places, uh, factories, and just seeing these incredible assembly lines of ceramic tiles being made and sitting, standing on top of the quality control deck and seeing people who are the size of 
little wildflowers because they were all wearing these different t-shirts, you know, so you can kind of see the glaze people kind of swarming into, you know, the, the, the slip people and everything. And it was just such a sublime experience. The, the, the factory that was my company's factory was much smaller in Vietnam, but it kind of gave me this, this, this felt experience of what it means to be in manufacturing. And then also how I got to sort of witness how people grappled with different kinds of values. It was, a, it was obviously a very fast growing company that had a lot of like, kind of, I don't know, like multinational global desires and ambitions but at the same time it was also deeply vietnamese it's also deeply singaporean the the owners were singaporean and that kind of i don't know i think that that experience i don't know planted a seed about capitalism and business like it's going to relate to this land stuff that i'm interested in later on a decade later but i think it kind of instilled in me this this interest in creating structures or creating systems to make capital you know like that that kind of a thing so anyway so i come back to america because i decide that i've had enough of vietnam i eventually get burned down and i I went, I, I go to grad school and in grad school, I, I first go in as an abstract painter because I can't like shake it. Like I can't, I, my, my brain has changed because of this manufacturing experience living in Vietnam. I'm starting to think about colonialism, post-colonialism. I'm starting to think about the Vietnam war. I'm starting to think about proxy wars and the cold war, but I have like no idea how to do anything. Like I, I'm like, I'm still an abstract painter and I'm terrified of image making. And so, you know, my first critique at Yale was not very positive because I was still kind of, the words that were coming out of my mouth, I think were not aligning with what I was making, you know, and I, I kind of did a 180 and I made a painting of my grandmother turning into a bird because I was thinking about ancestor worship. I was thinking about traditions and stuff like that. And this painting was so bad that my professor at the time, Sam Messer, well, I don't know why. I don't know if he said this because the painting was so bad, but in my opinion, it was very bad in hindsight. He said, you know, you should go and check out some birds because you're at Yale. And uh, there's this great guy, the scientist who works here called Rick, uh, Rick Prum. He does a lot of work on aesthetics and evolution and bird evolution and stuff like that. And so I was like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's go check it out, you know? And so I go over to the science area at Yale and I find out that in the ornithology library, every Friday morning, you can go in and learn to skin birds. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like what? This is incredible because I had met Rick and became really enamored in his scholarship and research. And I ended up auditing one of his ornithology classes. And then Rick introduced me to a whole bunch of other scientists who are working over there. And I met Christoph, who is the librarian at the at the lab and I ended up learning how to do some taxidermy and so then I go in every Friday morning during my grad school and I I skin birds and to break me out of abstraction 
I started to draw from observation. But the whole violence and nature thing came from this taxidermy experience where I was taking tweezers and I was just learning how to pick apart and separate the skin from the rest of the bird and then filling it up with cornmeal and drying it all out. And then you would sew it back up. And then the idea with the skin was that you'd you'd try to, you know, make the bird, you know, I guess as still and as smooth as possible so that the scientists later on could study the feather distribution on, on the specimen. I also did a couple different owls and so learned about the anatomy of owls and then, you know, did a... a Literally did a deconstructing the symbol yeah, of knowledge. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and and then that, so that's where it began, you know, and I think that this taxidermy experience like planted the seed for passenger pigeon press. And then slowly through this process, I was able to start thinking and talking about through art making these ideas that were starting to kind of rumble within me that I had just experienced over four years of living in Vietnam. Let me backfill a few things. You finished at Cooper in 2007 and you finished your MFA at Yale in 2013. Mm -hmm. On your website, you provide a chronological presentation of your paintings. Your earliest paintings on your own website date to 2014, so the year after you finished at Yale, and they are birds. And we'll have a link, of course, to your website on manpodcast.com, and I'm sure we'll have a bird painting on manpodcast.com too. Another major thrust of your interest in nature is the relationship individuals have with nature and how it's impacted or extended by diaspora. I think we see this in a lot of your paintings, especially in the last five or so years, um, including at the paintings now on view at the ICA. I think we also see it in your 2022 book, O, in which you, I don't want to say you write about it directly, but you write around it Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. How do you consider or understand the relationship between diaspora and nature? Let's take on the nature bit first. I think that something that I think I once was reading John Locke and and I was really enamored and confused by his I don't know his explanation of the right to property and it there was something about like how man becomes more free by owning land and that's always been really fascinating to me just hang on to that for a second. And I also think that the other thing I was really interested in was back in 2000 and I want to say 14 or 15, I was doing a residency at Wave Hill where I was creating artist books and they were basically creating analogies between a plant and a Greek myth. So I was comparing like Achilles to a bromeliad, for example. I was like comparing, you know, the fern to another story in Ovid. And my idea at the time was to run this experiment where through the process of art making and juxtaposition, I would create what initially begins as an analogy. And by the time you finish reading the artist book, the analogy is so strong, it's it's no longer an analogy, it becomes truth. 
you know, so in a, that was kind of like this experiment that I had, like, how do you make a metaphor become true? You know, so let's go back to the John Locke idea. And I think that this is evident in nature as well. When one can extend their identity in nature, in a way, when you're just talking about it, it lives in metaphor, it lives in signs and symbols, right? But then at some point, it does kind of become very true. Like folks who end up taking over land, cultures that end up taking over land, manifest realities that are very, very true, right? And so I think that that's something that I become really, really fascinated by and really confused by because how did, you know, how did something that was just a metaphor become so consequential to so many different people, you know, to, and so that, that's just to sort of answer your question about nature as it relates to diaspora though. Like, I think that my interest in diaspora is its lack of space, like a lack of a real place because it's always in between, you know? And so I guess that put up against this other idea of owning and claiming land, there are contradictions there that are really exciting for me to explore. I think that manifests itself in your work in, I mean, across a lot of your paintings over a lot of years now, you bring together cultural ideas and cultural figures and references to plants and geographies that are not from the same place all in Mm -hmm. one painting. So, for example, in the paintings you showed at the Berlin Biennale in 2022, you've got a European Middle East, a European constructed idea of a cultural figure from what we now call the Middle East presented with plants often composed of, I'm talking about Jesus, by the way, yeah. composed, <laughs> composed of plants that aren't from those places, right? You make paintings that blend European faith and iconography traditions with Singapore or Concord Mass and Vietnam. And like one of the things, maybe the major thing in your painting that jumps out at me is how they are, is how the ideas and constructions in them are always transnational and usually transoceanic. Is that something that just kind of happened as you made paintings or, you know, five years ago or seven years ago, you realized that that was the kernel that was and would be the kernel from which your practice kind of emerged. I don't think I knew that that's that was the thread that would keep coming out. You know, like I I had no idea, you know, but I think that it was something that felt natural to me to sort of condense these disparate things into a picture plane or into a project. Um, individual works, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it that seemed that seemed like the the right way to go about things, <laughs> you know, and I, obviously those are extensions of my own experience in my own life, right? In my own life and I think I think that other folks of diasporas might agree that, you know, it's all contradictory and it's all coming from different places, but it makes sense because you're living it. it it's totally harmonious despite having such chaotic points of origin. That works even with Euro-American mutts <laughs> like me. I go I go for hikes in the in Great Smoky <laughs> Mountains National Park and I think of Yosemite, right? I mean, it's I think we all do things like that in different ways. This is probably a good pivot to the show at the ICA Boston. The exhibition seems almost to be presided over 
by a striking painting of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Kind of sits at one end of a gallery, both because yeah. the painting sits at one end of the gallery and he and the painting is sitting. Kind of like he's at the head of a table. And as we've been discussing, you are not descended from the wasp structure that has venerated and, and in some ways propped up Emerson for all these years, um, yeah. the, a wasp structure that has not interrogated many of his yes. constructs as much as, I mean, maybe present company excluded, as much as maybe it should have. Ergo, why the heck did Emerson catch your attention? So Emerson has caught my attention since I was in high school. I had this incredible high school teacher. Mr. Em Emerson, famously popular among Vietnamese high school yeah, students no, in California. I, Mr. Pardini, <laughs> if he ends up listening, I'm going to send him this podcast. If he's still out there teaching English, my gosh. I don't even know like what I read of Emerson in high school. I have no, I have no memory of it, but I remember feeling so inspired by the transcendentalist. Like I, I, I know the other thing I'll also say is when I was growing up, Joe from little women was a really big character for me. Like she was so cool. She was so cool. Let me jump in for a second. We're about the same age and there was a little women movie that yeah, came out. Good. Well, yeah. back then there was, there was the Christian yeah, that's Bale. What I mean. That's what I mean. Christian yeah. Bale one. And then I know that uh, there's the, the newer, I, I, I like them both, but the one that I grew up with was when Weona Ryder played Joe. Right. And of course, Louisa May Alcott was someone that I had been, you know, kind of just reading throughout my childhood here and there and stuff like that. And so when I learned about the transcendentalist, the first time I had heard of transcendentalists was from Little Women from when I was very, very young, you know, because Joe dad, I think, is very much involved with the transcendentalists and everything in, in, in the novel. So when I read when I read Emerson and Thoreau in high school, again, I don't remember what it was I read, but I remember this feeling of being just really inspired by this sense of of self-definition, you know, of self-definition and the ability to sort of define oneself through work, labor, and extending yourself in nature, you know, and that I think is a really kind of like a very American ideal. And it is also very inspirational to young people. I don't, I don't think that's like unreasonable, right? So when the ICA gave me the opportunity to create an exhibition, Emerson was someone who, you know, it was just an interest that I didn't exactly untap. It was just kind of there. And I hadn't really ever gone through a process of reflecting on why I liked these ideas in transcendentalism. And already I was thinking about land. Already I was thinking about nature. Conveniently, my cousin lives in Concord. So I was like, oh, well, this would be a great place to begin thinking about a show. And there we are. So speaking of Emerson as a patriarch, within the show, and even even within the individual painting, I think you're offering Emerson as a cultural patriarch of U.S. imperialism, mm -hmm. which I think he was, although he was doing that and offering ideas that become important in the cultural representation of American imperialism in North America. Mm -hmm. How did you come to think of Emerson as a cultural patriarch of U.S. imperialism? I don't know if I've ever said that as clearly as you just did, you know, like I almost I wrote a book about it. So yeah. I <laughs> 
I feel like the way that I think about Emerson would be much more of a a father of manifest destiny, you know, which Manifest destiny is imperialism. Manifest destiny was the word 19th century wasps or the phrase 19th century wasps used to cloak what they were doing. Right. But I think that I say that as a distinction from imperialism because that cloaking is so important in the story of imperialism. Do you know what I mean? And so in a way that allows for the cannibalism to happen, you know, because it becomes about like appetite and and being and satiated, you know, it, it has those, those, those qualities to it that become really kind of seductive in a, in a way that imperialism isn't seductive, you know what I mean? And so that becomes important in the process of making it because it kind of involves this whole like, foraging this quality of foraging this quality of weeding this quality of 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 mining right and so the attitude of those two words are really different for me and a lot of representations of emerson think like daniel chester french portrait busts or or the many many photographs of emerson emerson who was not exactly a great beauty and had a nose the size of rhode island was not at all shy about being photographed you know in many of those representations he's presented as an avuncular patriarch, you know, in a way that encourages us to remember that he's kind of the leading, if not founding, transcendentalist, the leading American capital R romantic, the leading self-made man of the nation, even though, Mm -hmm. of course, there's some mythologizing there. He was was born to the leading Protestant minister in Boston. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he was born well. And so on. Okay. So all Mm -hmm. that. Your representation of Emerson, your in, in your painting of him, which will be on manpodcast.com, of course, he's significantly more menacing. Why do you present him as almost menacing and then as a painter in, in, in painterly ways? How do you do it? I think that the menacing result was almost an accident because when I was thinking about the Emerson portrait, I was basing it off of a regal statue of him. And I was, I think my, I can't remember where I got my source image from, but it's, it's one of those like classical images of Emerson where he's just so, he looks so regal in his, in his posture. He looks very serious. He looks like the father, right? There's something very fatherly about him. Let me just quickly interrupt to say that the Emerson sculpture in on, on, on which you based your representation in your painting is the Seated Emerson by Daniel Chester French that many people may know from the Concord Free Library in Concord. Yeah. So I think that when I used that source image, I- image in the painting, I didn't set out to create a menacing image of Emerson. I was really just looking for an image that I could break up with landscape you know, with ideas of landscape. And that's kind of how I approached all of the figuration throughout the show. Like, what are some source images that give me formal opportunities to slice, break up, confuse with the foreground, push into the background and stuff like that. And the way that I created Emerson also was, so there's four, there's four figures in the show. There's Emerson, there's President Moden Zim, who is the first elected president who's later assassinated of South Vietnam. There's also a, an image of Jesus that's based off of a statue in Vung Tau. And then there's also Demeter, who's the goddess of harvest. And so 
the Emerson, so what I did with each of the four pictures is I, I compared them to a season in the year, in, in the Northeastern year. Sorry, that's very important because the, the foliage is tropical from tropical places that don't have four seasons. And then the four characters are, are, are compared to four seasons. So Emerson happens to be the one where I'm thinking about summer. And so a lot of the colors in Emerson are trying to be very torrid. And I think this kind of then creates a pathway into his rendering as a menacing figure. You know, his body starts to be filled up with this kind of like ochre, orangey, swampy body of water. And it rises and rises. And then he himself, his shoulders start to cascade into this kind of like tropical Jurassic Park looking kind of forest thing, right? And so through the process of making him be consumed by the season of summer, he then becomes this kind of menacing, menacing character who still, I think, kind of possesses the same regal posture as in like the source image. Oh, yeah, for for, for sure. Let me fill in a few things. So Emerson is surrounded by tropical vegetation, which in the context of the rest of the show, the viewer is very likely to read as Asian. And of course, there is nothing Asian about Emerson or his ideas. So the the viewer has a feeling of disjunctiveness there right away. For me, some of the menace comes from the the, the purple outlines around his facial and hand mm-hmm. features that kind of intensify, almost darken, even though formally they lighten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, his brow, um, but but formal, but but they seem to kind of darken his intensity. And then Emerson is ringed by reminders of imperial United States violence by helicopters, which run right across his eyes in, in like a halo that, that circles or, or an implied halo that circles his head. Behind him, there are kind of other instruments of war, such as forms which we may read as parachutes descending, a, a symbol of U.S. national power as being friendly, a, a handshake and, mm-hmm. and so on. It's a it's a very kind of I don't know mid twenty tens Julie Maritou collision of mm. imagery pictogram diaspora and globalism that you have composed in both the Emerson painting and the others very simply figure surrounded by nature mm-hmm. done that ends up being very layered and complicated mm-hmm. in how the image is built f- front to back mm-hmm. in the picture plane. Let me ask about the relationship between these four paintings and East Asian landscape painting, because I think East Asian landscape painting is not something U.S. audiences especially. Yeah, not something U.S. audiences know super well, which is too bad because there are like there, there are extremely major, say, Chinese paintings collections at the University of California's Berkeley Art Museum or the Nelson Atkins. Mm-hmm. There are internationally elite Asian collections, including of Asian landscape painting at Cleveland and the MFA Boston, St. Louis, and, and, and so on. So what in East Asian landscape painting is important to you? Mm-hmm. And how have you come to know it? So I think that East Asian painting became important in my work now because of the materials that I've ended up using in the paintings. So one really pivotal change that happened to 
my painting. So this isn't to say my prints or my 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 artist books or anything because those have always utilized paper. Was in 2015 or so. I started, so for the longest time, like I said before, I mean, I used to be this like hardcore, like oil painter, canvas, you know, that kind of a thing. And for the longest time, I always felt like the prints and the artist books, at least from a formal perspective, were always a little bit further ahead than my paintings. Like I was able to condense imagery better. I was able to tie different narratives together better. And the oil paintings, I mean, I don't know. It was always, I was always defeated. And it, and I felt like I was always like overcooking the paintings or something. I just couldn't get it to work. And in 2015, I had just finished a residency at the Center for Book Arts. I'd become, I I, I was starting to form Passenger Pigeon Press. And I, at the time, I had just sort of, gained a lot of new techniques in bookmaking. Like I had just like learned a lot from this residency. And so I decided, you know, I can just like laminate a piece of paper on a little panel, you know, and that was kind of the beginning to everything, you know, everything that you now know about my painting process or paintings as they exist. I just laminated a painting and it's, it's very, a laminated panel. And it's very similar to wrapping like a book, a book board for like a book or something like that. You'd clip the corners a certain way. But what's really nice about it is that the glue holds the paper, but then with water, it continues to stretch and stretch and stretch. And it creates the surface becomes more and more and more taut, you know? And what that allowed me to do was somehow it justified using ink. Like somehow, I mean, of course you can use ink on oil but or, or ink on canvas, but I just couldn't like do it, which is so, sounds so silly when you say it now, you know, of course you can, but I couldn't, you know. But through, by being able to use ink and my ink drawings were a mu- much further ahead, much more energetic than, than my oil paintings were and everything. But for some reason, doing ink on this panel that is now been covered in paper just allowed me a different kind of dimension to condense information into a picture plane. And so by changing the materiality of the painting, suddenly East Asian painting becomes intrinsic to the work because this is a tradition that whose grammar is basically ink on paper, right? Those are the building blocks to so much of the history of East Asian painting. So that's one reason why East Asian painting became really important. My 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 knowledge on East Asian painting is still limited, but it began at the Cooper Union. I had a drawing teacher named Lisa Lolly who was really influential in the way that I think about mark making, in the way that I think about shapes. And she early on, I remember one of her assignments to me was like, you know, in one week, I want you to make 30 drawings, like whatever happens, like I'm going to show up to your studio, I'm going to see 30 drawings. And she told me about the mustard seed catalog. And the mustard seed catalog is a dictionary, essentially, of, of, I don't know, of archetypes, like flowers, fish, frogs, whatever. But they were all in Chinese painting, I don't know, 
it was like a dictionary. It was like a Chinese painting dictionary where you would go in, you would see like a variety of different flowers done in a variety of different ways through just ink on paper, you know? And so that became really important because now when I think about how I create form, I'm very much thinking about how rendering a leaf for me, when I'm thinking about how to paint a leaf, I'm also thinking about how to write a leaf. So one thing that's really important in the making of the work is that when you look through the passages of the painting, I want it to feel fresh. I want it to feel swift and I want it to feel natural as if everything was just kind of laid there for you to see much like in a lot of Eastern paintings. So for example, in the trees that are kind of like surrounding Emerson's head in that, those are actually based off of a collection of maple trees in my backyard and also some palm fronds that are in my dining room. The maple leaf, though, does not make itself obvious. Rather, it's made through a variety of different shapes, which I observed from looking outside. It's made up of these kind of three triangular shapes that are swooshed together, these swiggly lines, which mime the veins of a a maple leaf, and then these other sort of contouring lines. Together, those three things become the way that I write, quote unquote, the maple tree in throughout the show. So rather than rendering a maple tree, I'm writing it. So in that way, this sort of this early learning of the mustard seed catalog became really important later on in how I'm thinking about creating language throughout the paintings. So keeping that in mind, when I was making the show, I was also really influenced by a show that I had seen in South Korea. My last exhibition before the ICA show was in South Korea at Lehman Maupin. And while I was there, I saw this amazing exhibition of folding screens. And it was just uh, traditional Korean folding screens. It was at, I have a catalog here. It was at the Amori Pacific Museum of Art. And these paintings had these just epic, epic landscapes. And when you went in, you could see each like acorn, for example, like really defined through a series of ovals and circles or whatever. And they were so specific. And I was so impressed by the density of the image, yet also the economy of how it was made. Like these are all very simple moves that are basically circles and triangles kind of put together in different ways, you know, so that was a really big influence. And then the other big influence in the show, I've got this catalog here too, is a book that I found at Stanford, near Stanford, actually, of Jia Yufu, who's a, a Chinese painter who I was looking at a lot of before making the show. So yeah. One of the reasons that's all really interesting is that about five or six years ago, your paintings began to densify both picture plane to the back and then across the surface of the painting. They got dense, 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 dense. Mm -hmm. Was the process of learning you just described why that happened or why that was able to happen? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that what I had to figure out over many years was how to first kind of not master, because I don't think I'm a master of the surface yet, but really become competent in the surface of paper, in, 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 in the paper surface, you know, like I had to make a lot of changes in how I glue the paper down. And then I had to keep figuring out the right 
way to sort of, I had to figure out the right types of paint to, that allowed me to move, you know? So the types of inks that I use now are like the kinds that really let me glide onto the surface and stuff like that. That you can push around a bit. Exactly. And so I think that took many years of experimentation. And I think the big thing that happened in about 2020 and 2021 was being able to shift from a tabletop scale to a very large scale. And I think that by that time, I'm able to actually fit all that stuff in that you are identifying as like very, very dense, you know, and that took from figuring out what's the panel made out of, you know, to to be able to prevent the warping from the glue, you know, what, you know, what kind of glue can I use so that the paper doesn't buckle as I'm trying to laminate this giant, you know, seven foot piece of paper, right? So what are those different combinations that give me that surface so that I could really kind of be free? One of the other things about your oeuvre that I find, uh, at least over the last five or seven years, both interesting and consistent, is that you resist the compositional standards of historical U.S. landscape painting, And you also resist a lot of the composition and presentational and structural, if you will, standards of historical Asian landscape painting, which is to say, you don't do, you don't exactly do either one. And I don't want to speak in absolutes because there have been moments when you've dipped into like references to Asian screens and so on. But generally, is there intentionality in not doing one and not doing the other? I'm so happy that it ended up not being one or the other. No, no, really. It's kind of great. But I think that when I'm referencing and researching for a show, my references are so deeply Western and so deeply Eastern and so deeply a whole bunch of other things like, you know, illuminated manuscripts and Stations of the Cross. Stations of the Cross. But even for Stations of the Cross, like, my God, those references were everything from like Catholic school coloring books to murals in the Philippines and oh. you know, statues in well, the initial inspiration were these statues in, in Indonesia. But the they came from so many different places. And then, you know, the techniques that I have learned to just love exploring and developing come from my experience learning about illuminated manuscripts at the Center for Book Arts, as much as they are about learning how to gild within the context of lacquer painting, that I'm just really happy that the result, the resulting work is neither devout to any truth is not devout to any tradition right so that's great (laughs) i mean there are other ways in which you fought cultural traditions that i think are really interesting so i think once or twice we've each referenced the series of paintings you made last year for the berlin biennale or biennial or however you say it in german what do i know i'm a 19th century (laughs) guy Anyway, it was a series of paintings that you installed or conceived or both really within the Stations of the Cross tradition. Yeah. One of them, and if they have individual titles, I'm sorry, I don't know them. But one of them presents a Jesus figure with his hands crossed and ringed by snakes Mm -hmm. with at least one bird of prey descending on the snakes. Jesus is surrounded by, I think you could say made of, greenery. He has wild hair, ringlets and whatnot, a wild beard, more ringlets, more whatnot. And for me, whether you intended it or not, comma, I suspect you did, comma, 
He is the green man, uh, the wild man of Anglo and Germanic tradition. Is that an example of your being interested in, you know, like maybe the seventh cultural tradition we've discussed in the last hour and engaging it with a language that you have developed across things that are not specifically Anglo or Saxon? Yes, but I don't think that the intentions are so confident when the paintings are first being made. Like, I I think that a lot of the decisions are, I don't know, they, I'm kind of like learning and forming my intentions as I go more often, you know, like the intentions at the beginning are more like propositions for different experiments or something like, like, what if, what if, what if Jesus was one with the woods, was one with the jungle. So that is a proposition on creating some kind of a wild man, you know? But as I get into those different spaces and stuff, the intentions shift and become, I don't know, they become more and more confident in themselves, you know? But at the beginning, I don't think that I'm so clear-headed about where it's supposed to go. You're saying you're not being equational in your planning of the work, but because you're interested in all of these transoceanic constructions and cultural and historical references, that Mm -hmm. that's how it works out by the end. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like, for example, you know, the snakes, snakes and birds of prey are are common, common elements and subjects in the work. And for a decade. um, yeah, and snakes, for example, those are some snakes are animals that are so wonderfully biblical, and yet they're also wonderful formal devices to become tornado, to become cloud, to become hair, to become worm, to become string, whatever you know. So I'm as I'm like collecting subjects and stuff, I like how they're able to oscillate between these references that I'm. I'm interested in learning more and more about, and then also being these kinds of pieces of grammar that I can develop later on. Snakes are also, of course, important in United States Protestant-informed cultural traditions. During the Civil War, the snake was the northern symbol for the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. So you have envelopes and and prints in which the snake is referenced as something that the North, uh, the Union, needs to step on, for lack of a better phrase. There are at the Charleston Museum in Charleston, South Carolina, Southern rejoinders to the Union use of the snake, in which in in, in which there are artworks or, or cultural works anyway, in which the snake is triumphant. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of this yeah. slipperiness that is is culturally useful across centuries and makers, which I think is in a lot of your work. We've touched on a whole bunch of art historical references, but I haven't asked a gotcha question yet. Is Larry Pittman at all important to you? Ah, oh, I just met him for the first time like two weeks ago. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Influence. So, so how and why is Pittman's work beyond the fact that you share a dealer important to you? Well, so Larry Pittman was someone who I had in my studio wall, like pinned to my, pinned to my, like when I was at Cooper, like I had his paintings pinned to my studio. So it, it runs deep, you know? And at the beginning Larry Pittman was someone really important to me because of mark making. You know, I was interested in mark making when I was, you know, more of a of a more of an abstract fundamentalist. And I was also always really enamored with Larry's work because 
I always wondered about how he was able to condense so much information into a picture plane and yet still achieve a degree of clarity. You know, like I never felt overly tired. And then I was also really enamored by the surfaces that he was able to create, you know, so that was always something really important to me. And I also think that, you know, Larry is also combining pieces of information, pieces of mythologies that come from a lot of different places. And they all, they're all pretty believable in this world, in these worlds that he creates from show after show after show. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I was very lucky to meet him like a few weeks ago. <laughs> I, I mean, I think leaving alone the paintings, both yours and his, your practices are strikingly similar paper is really important to Pittman and he's always been a maker of works on paper a prolific maker of works on paper and he's also been a prolific bookmaker and has you know done entire exhibitions of only books that he has made and had bound I think there are a number of ways beyond the rectangle in which you know I kind of see it and beyond yeah. the dealership that I kind of see it jumping off so yeah 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 Tammy Wynn thanks very much Oh my gosh, that was my pleasure. Thanks so much for inspiring me through your edition of Nature. <laughs> the Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Chrissa in New York through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant-garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co-organized by the Manil Collection and Dia Art Foundation, Krissa and New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Jean Quick to See Smith Memory Map, organized by the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. For nearly five decades, Jean Quick to See Smith, a citizen of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Nation, has charted an exceptional and unorthodox career. The exhibition highlights more than 100 works, including her drawings, prints, paintings, and sculptures. Memory Map is the largest and most comprehensive showcase of Smith's career. Organized thematically, the exhibition offers a new framework to consider contemporary Native American art, addressing how Smith has initiated and led some of the most pressing dialogues around land, racism, and cultural preservation. It celebrates the artist's dedication to creativity and community, emphasizes her deep political commitments, and offers essential and potent reminders of our responsibilities to the earth and each other. On view at the Modern October 15th through January 21st. More at the Modern. Org. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. Welcome back. 
Next up, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth is presenting Jammy Holmes, Make the Revolution Irresistible, a survey of approximately 15 paintings Holmes has made since 2019. The exhibition reveals Holmes's interest in black domestic spaces, particularly as they relate to his hometown of Thibodeau, Louisiana, and the continuing impacts of the Black Panther Party. The exhibition, which was curated by Maria Elena Ortiz, is on view through November 26th. The catalog, which was published by The Modern, is available from the museum for $65. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Jamie Holmes, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. The earliest painting in your exhibition at The Modern is called Box Fan Heroes. It's from 2019. It establishes a central interest or theme of yours, which is Black life lived at home, the influence and often the joy of home. Did you intend this picture to be a marker, a kind of thematic jumping off point from which your practice would, as it turns out, be born? Honestly, when I first created that painting, it was just more of a a feeling that I was getting when I was reminiscing one day in my studio. Well, at the time, I was living in Deep Ellum. <laughs> so it was like a live workspace. When I painted that, it was just like I was just thinking about like the past at that moment, at that at that time period, I really wasn't deep into painting my story. And that was like pretty much, it was one of those beginning stages of painting what I recollect. Like, so I guess in a way, yeah, it, it did kick off. <laughs> it did kick off everything that's, uh, that's happening today. What are some of the ways in which home is in this picture? So you could see Thibodeau. In writing there, you can see the box fan. I grew up in a shotgun house. So I lived there. Well, I lived there until maybe when I was 12, 13 years old. And the house was, uh, you know, you see from the front door to the back door. Like, just open the door, you can see the backyard. So, but it was it was normal at the time, you know. I'm sure I could still live that way and it still be normal. <laughs> The box fan is in the front window of the house and pictorially it plays off of, you know, I don't know the term for these, but the red markings that were put on houses in the wake of Katrina to alert people to whether there was somebody inside or the condition right. of the house. You know, I'm sure you know the word for the thing that I don't, but what, 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 what is that? And, 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 and why is it here in this picture? Uh, I guess I was just showing some sort of desertion at the time. But with the box fan itself, it was like one of my ways of seeing everything that I wanted to be like, because I had older family members and friends, you know, that was outside. My mom had us in the house at a certain time, so I didn't want to be seen. So what I would do is get in the middle of the box fan and look through everything so nobody could notice me. (laughs) <laughs> and that's that way I could see what was going on outside. And, and I remember like saying, man, that's what I want to be, you know? So that's where the whole term box fan heroes come from, because I was like, you know, they didn't have Superman or Batman really in our neighborhood. So one of the major subjects or themes that runs through not only your work and this exhibition, but also the catalog is your interest in the Black Panther Party. I'm thinking of works such as Fred Hampton from 2022, A Toast to Kathleen Cleaver from that same year, 
And of course, in the exhibition catalog, there's a really interesting conversation that involves Emery Douglas that I think we'll talk about a little bit later. How did you come to know of and be interested in the Black Panther Party? You're almost too young, you know. Honestly, it it came from like my mom. Like she when she was young, she moved to New York in Harlem. So, you know, coming from the South, that wasn't like a real big thing, but a lot of the Black Panthers had left the South and moved up north and out west. You know, uh, my mom was friends with Geronimo Pratt, which was a Black Panther member, well-known Black Panther member as well. My mom and my uncle was uh, real close with him. And it's just, I've just always just, it's like one of those things I always just known, you know, like it was never like hidden from me. It was always like, hey, you know, if you feel strongly about something, you should speak up. Like, you shouldn't keep that to yourself. So I was thinking about it when I was in my studio one day. I was like, man, I want to circle back and give roses to all those folks that really was making change for the betterment. You know, some of the changes are still being used, like with the free lunch program and things like that. So I just wanted to circle back and give them their roses. In a number of works, your interest in Black domestic space and the Panthers come together. Perhaps the best example, perhaps the most complex example, is a 2023 painting called Zebra in the Room, which indeed foregrounds the Panthers People Free Food Program, which you mentioned a moment ago, uh, right. that provided free breakfast for children before school. The picture is assembled from a series of planes, which you spatially compress in ways that hold our eyes in the picture, that keep our eye moving around. It's 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 the kind of picture that once your eyes begin moving from plane to plane to plane, the way you've built the picture just holds our eyes and moves it around, move them around. The most dramatic way in which you kind of build these planes and compress space comes in the woman who sits at the left of the picture. She's wearing a white dress and red heels, so she she comes forward. And well, what have you done with her head? <laughs> <laughs> and why? I was raised by women that was, so I guess like in my neighborhood, like you learn how to be a man in the streets, but the women teach you how to survive and and just, and, and teach you how to respect others and women. So being that I was raised by women, I felt like it was important to like highlight them in a in a different way, you know, the way I see it you know, bigger than life. So what I did was I blew her up and I framed her face to say, hey, like, I see you and I want everybody to see you despite the rest of the painting, you know? So that was first and foremost. And then when it, when it came down to the zebra, the zebra is part of my identity. So that whole painting was about identity. It was about my upbringing, where I'm from, so you'll see the Time Picayune newspaper, which is a Louisiana newspaper, and you'll see the zebra itself. And it's, it's half of the zebra because my dad's from Sierra Leone. My mom is from Louisiana. So it's like showing that half and half. And again, that painting right there was not planned out. It was just one of those things where I was just painting a mood 
and how I was feeling at the time. And I just kept building on it. I had like a feeling that I wanted to capture more than the image that I wanted to to paint. So I just wanted to to capture the feeling of identity. The image is pretty richly composed though. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite parts of the painting are these lines, these vertical lines that kind of manifest themselves as like tensor lights and how they connect the parts of the painting. Do you know the part of the picture I'm talking about? Yeah, the, the, uh, the lighting fixture. Yeah. How did, how did, how and why did you use those that way? Honestly, it was, it, I felt like it just fit the room, you know, trying to capture a moment where black folks was in an environment that was, you know, mid-century and, and a little more luxury, but staying true to themselves. So the guy actually still has gold teeth in his mouth, but he's wearing a tie, you know, just, just wanted to capture like, them in a luxury environment, but staying true to who they are as as people. I mentioned that one of my favorite things about how you build paintings is that you create these flat fields of color and play them off of each other. I think kind of Hans Hoffman meets William H. Johnson, whose flat color is... Johnson has a really particular palette that I like a lot. So I wanted to raise two examples and ask you to tell us how you use the combination of color and figure to tell a story. The first is property tax from 2020, in which we see oranges and gray, blue, a warm yellow, a piney green, and two figures in the foreground. So with property tax, well, the way I the the way I pick my colors, honestly, is more like a I paint in seasons. So like I call it a season. So if I'm feeling a certain way, that's the colors that I'm working with. And most likely I'm going to work with those same colors for months. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at like MLK and then the spiral paintings, they're all the same color palette. Any, it's, it's like a, I just call it, I just call it a season. I have a whole bunch of paint in my studio. And one thing I don't do is, use every single color because I have them. So I clear my cart whenever I feel like I'm changing seasons. I clear my cart. I go to my paint and I just, it's like a feeling that I already know. It's hard to really explain how I pick the colors. It's just something that seems right and feels right. And I learn how to make them, I learn how to make them communicate with each other. And and I go from there. Like, and like right now, I think that I'm getting close to a new season of colors. I'm excited. We're in late I, September. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel excited about it. I'm just I'm curious to see what it is when I walk to the to the to the paint. Until then, I'm just keep staying what's on my cart and the season that I'm in right now. One of the things your use of color almost always does, not always, but almost always does, is it pushes figures forward toward the viewer. It makes us, the viewer, feel closer to whoever or whomever, whichever. I mean, you know, I'm bad at who and whom. Make makes us feel closer to the figures in, in, in your paintings. Is that a, I mean, I presume that's intentional. I presume that you're looking for ways to to compress space in ways that 
encourage us to relate to the people in your pictures. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the reasons why I do what I do. I feel like we're in a society, especially with, with COVID happening, we can't be up and personal as much as we used to be. I feel like, and another thing, I feel like society, everybody have their societal bubbles. So their friends are their friends. They don't try to make new friends. They don't, they don't, they're not as close to each other because of social media. It's easy just to text. It's easy just to follow someone. But what I like to do is create my figures bigger. That way you can feel like, oh, this is like an actual human. And you get the opportunity to be able to fly on the wall at that moment and be there next to that person to try to wonder and think, what is this person feeling? And, you know, it's just a, a different way of inviting people to be become closer to the to the figures. Maybe my favorite picture in the show is called Endurance. It's from 2020, and it's a terrifically complicated evocation of indoor and outdoor and painterly space. Features a kind of barbershop scene that is, I don't know, kind of both indoors and outdoors. Just above the center of the picture, you join or fuse a a flat flowerscape, pink flowers on a sky blue ground with a an outline of a black rectangle with a flat patch of orangish L-shaped color with a man sitting in a chair having his hair cut by a man who is standing next next to and behind him. All of which is to say, and we'll have an image of this on manpodcast.com, of course, all of which to say there is a whole lot of stuff going on in about 30 square inches in the middle of the painting. And it works. The whole painting spirals out of that 30 square inches. And it's obvious that you were trying to do a whole lot of stuff in that tiny little area. How did you think about what you wanted to do in that little space? That one that one came to me fairly easy because that's a portrait of me cutting my brother's hair. And we don't we never really told each other like, ah, oh, I love you. And I feel like I've been cutting his hair for years. Ever since we was really young, I've always looked out for him. I always cut his hair. Matter of fact, I'm going to the studio today to cut his hair. So it's like it's like our love language to each other. That's the time that we get to spend with each other. And and so that one came easy because the emotions that I was feeling when I was painting that was like it was bringing me back to like our childhood of me looking out for him, me taking care of him, me convincing him peanut butter and sugar cane was life, you know, all of the things. So with that, and also passing, I wanted the viewer to feel like they was passing these guys up on the road and looking like, wow, like put their guards down. You know, like you already made it really intimidating. My goal was, I put everybody in all black because, you know, black clothes come. It's so intimidating because they always say like a robber wear black or somebody that's doing something stealth wearing black It's always. So I, I made sure they was wearing black. They're black men. And if you're passing and you see the florals to soften up the mood and it's like it's a tender moment. And it's like, wow, 
that's just humans at the end of the day. It's like a human thing. You know, so when I was doing that, I was thinking about all of those things at one time, like wondering what the viewer that was driving past it would feel at the same time. What's the floral from? Um, It's just like wallpaper, like a, mm. you know, like a, a view of like a soft wallpaper that I, I just created out of my head. <laughs> the other the other thing I really love is there is a plant stalk growing out of you know, like a bowl or something in the lower right-hand corner. And it's this very Matissean moment of joining the indoors and the outdoors, the the, right. the the real and the artificial. And of course, it's all artificial, but it unites the background and the foreground in a way that brings the two figures closer to us as as viewers. It's, it's absolutely a terrific picture. There's also this very Basquiat moment at the lower left where you're adding or subtracting figures. Right. You know, I had always done those things and and i remember when when i first started painting a lot of people compared compared it to basquiat and but not really understanding that i have a background in uh quality control so writing out blueprints and making notes and manufacturing that was one of those things that i've done for 13 years before i started painting so all those numbers that comes out in my head, I'm still doodling. I'm still thinking about that, you know. And when it came down to the plant, I wanted to show like some sort of growth. And I'm sure that it was uh, a lot of that is a stream of consciousness because I'm not really planning out the paintings like much. But the numbers were stream of consciousness and the plant that was outside is a stream of consciousness. And when I was able to look back at it, it reminded me of, okay, I must be feeling some sort of growth. And that's where that came from, like the inner growth in myself. One of the successes of the pictures is that you jump off from and build upon two painters who are completely unlike, Basquiat and, and Carrie James Marshall, whose pictures are really controlled and tied down. And Basquiat's, of course, are less so. And somehow you advance in both directions at once. Um, <laughs> I want to ask about two things that recur in a lot of your pictures. One is a number of people, characters, you know, if we think in terms of staging, in many of your pictures wear T-shirts that say or, or begin to say rest in peace or rest in power or rest in memory, T-shirt after T-shirt after T-shirt after T-shirt. Why some why why that t-shirt? Why so many of them in so many um, paintings? They're not in a bunch of paintings. When I created those a series called Karen Caskets, it was about the loss of uh, loved ones, and I left the open. I left the the square open because I wanted people to envision like their loved ones that they might have lost, and and give themselves the opportunity to mourn as well or celebrate their life. I didn't know how to mourn, and I felt like, man, this is, when I was painting, I was like, you know what, this is going to be a time where I focus on how I feel this time. You know, you always tend to focus on everybody else's feelings, but sometimes you don't think about how you might might have been affected by certain situations. It was like uh, one of those moments where I was like, if I feel like this, I know others probably feel like this as well, so I didn't want to put a particular image in there, I want everybody to think about even their self being in there, thinking about their family, 
their moms, dads, cousins, kids. I want everybody to feel uh, included on that. So, because it's again, it's a human, it's a human thing to lose people that you love. And through art, I want people to feel included in everything that I talk about and do because it's a universal. My work is universal. Another object, if you will, that that recurs in a couple of paintings is a a vertical, if you will, wristwatch. It's in Blame the Man number two and Living in the Shadows, both from 2021. In one picture, Blame the Man, a person is wearing the wristwatch. In Living in the Shadows, the wristwatch is the size of a rocking chair. <laughs> what What is that wristwatch and, and, and why do we get it several times? It's a gold nugget citizen's wristwatch. I have my reason behind it. I don't want to disclose it, but... I do actually have a real reason why. Such an artist. <laughs> I, I do have an actual reason why it played on me. It played on me in uh, multiple negative ways. And at the same time, it, it still was one of those things where I had, I looked for acceptance to, to be able to even wear that watch. But uh, so uh, I think that's. <laughs> Painter's prerogative. <laughs> I want to wrap up with a section of the catalog I briefly raised earlier, and it's a Q&A or really more of a conversation between Lauren Cross, Emery Douglas, who, of course, was a graphic artist who was the Minister of Culture for the Panthers, and you. And near the end of the conversation, Douglas asks Cross for permission to, to read off his 12-part political artist manifesto, and of course, Cross grants that permission. And as soon as you heard it, you said to Cross and Douglas that you wanted to print out all 12 sentences and put them up on the wall of your studio. And they're, 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 they're pretty great. Did you do that? And are there works that you've made or that you're planning or that you're thinking through, maybe even in the show, that jump off from Douglas's Political Artist Manifesto? I actually printed out a small piece of paper in the front of my that's in my studio, but I actually really want to do an, a full-size poster. But me wow. being as polite as I am, I don't know how I feel about remaking it as a poster because I'm like, I'm so polite. And I always try to understand artists like space because I know how I am because like I have other artists that paints portraits of me and I'm like, <gasps> Oh, like I'm freaking out sometimes. So I'm like, man, I would hate to like make this poster, design it and everything just just so I could have it in my, my studio. But I definitely printed it out and I look at it and it's just really inspiring. Like I have a lot of things in my studio that inspires me all the way from his quotes to a disco ball that I got from one of my neighbors. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say a disco ball you got from Emory Douglas. That was really going to blow my mind. <laughs> I, I have a, a few original Black Panther newspapers that's framed in my house that Emory Douglas designed. So I and I cherish those. I just love people that just stand up for humanity. You know, like there's, this humanity. There's some of those newspapers and some of Douglas's posters in the catalog as well. And and I don't want to mention. Douglas's political artist manifesto without noting something you said about three 
paragraphs later in this conversation between Cross, Douglas, and yourself. And that is, artists can change the world. We decide what the world looks like. And I think art historians often forget that. And I like, I mean, I think that's such a fundamental core idea about how artists have operated within and in response to the United States broader national project that I may, I may quote that in, 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 in the early pages of a couple of upcoming books. So um, like, awesome. I think that's exactly right. May all the art historians hear it. Jamie right. Holmes, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.